0: All right, good morning. Hey, let's take a look at uh, John's Gospel. We're in chapter 18. Hopefully we'll finish the chapter today. That's my hope. But last week, if you remember, Jesus, uh, it recorded for us in the first 11 verses that Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, he had spent time with his disciples in the upper room on that Passover evening. As they enjoyed the Passover meal, and they also took the Lord's Supper, which was a separate thing from the Passover meal, where Jesus basically offered the bread and the cup, and he used them as symbols for what he was going to do, and what he, in his mind, he had already done, and that is that his body would be broken for, uh, for us, and that his blood, through the wine, would be, would be the blood of the new covenant because of the blood that he shed on the cross for us. And these things were symbols and they took them into themselves. And Jesus says, do this often as you will in remembrance of me. To do that in remembrance of me. And you remember after that night uh, and, and, and after Judas had left to continue in his betrayal, Judas continuing in his betrayal, because he had already betrayed Jesus by this point. It had already been settled. But now, the 11 plus Jesus are in the upper room, minus Judas, and then the Lord uh, prays. And we looked at that in in chapter 17. And then finally, he goes over the Brook Kidron and over on the east side of Jerusalem from the Temple Mount there to a garden on the Mount of Olives called the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's really an oil press. And today, there's oil, or there's olive trees there. In fact, when when we visited there just this uh, last March, actually, there were there are olive trees there that are over two thousand years old. I mean, the the root systems are are still those those olive trees. Their root systems go back to the time of when Jesus was there. And so here I am standing at this tree that's the root system, uh, a tree that had been growing there and you know, falling and then coming up again since the time of Jesus. And it was kind of interesting to sit there and think, you know, this, I'm standing on the place where the Lord could have been with his disciples in this area, you know, and it's really exciting. And so Jesus, while he is in there in the garden with his disciples, remember, a detachment of troops and the officers, they came to arrest Jesus and you remember that Jesus says, who are you looking for? Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And, and the word he is in italics, which means in your Bibles, it'll say he, but it'll be in italics, which means it wasn't there in the original language. The translators put it there for us to help us understand who was he talking about. But he's talking about himself. But what Jesus literally said was, I am And that has a big significance because you go back to Exodus 3 and in the fiery, you know, in the burning bush, remember Moses spoke to Christ in a pre-incarnate form speaking through that burning bush and he revealed himself as I am that I am. And so the Jews knew very well when Jesus says, I am. And remember, when he revealed himself in that way, that the troops, the soldiers that had come to arrest him, actually, there was somewhere between 200 to 600 men that night that came to arrest him. Can you imagine that? There's 11 of them, or 12, including Jesus. And they bring two or between, somewhere between 200 to 600 men to come and arrest them. And they weren't armed. It wasn't like they had you know, M16s or anything, they didn't have any grenades, you know, no landmines. They had nothing. <laughs> Jesus was just sitting there, standing there in his sandals as they came to him. And they came and they arrested him, remember. And so, and remember, it was at that time that Peter, trying to prove himself, decided that he's going to pull out his sword. And Aiden was so nice yester- or last week to... Uh, be the visual aid I I, I didn't cut off his head but remember I I just missed his ear as he glanced and uh, and so that's what Peter did he meant to take Malchus's head off but at the last minute Malchus saw it coming and glanced and it just sheared his ear off his right ear and Jesus remember picking it up healed Malchus and what a wonderful savior we have I mean, to do all that, I mean, if it was my enemies coming to me, that's the last thing I would do. And see, that's the difference between the world and Jesus Christ, and the, the difference between the world and the way we Christians ought to be, because the world is mean. Anybody find that out? Anybody figure that out that the world is a nasty place? It's not a good place. It's hostile. And it's very opposed to Jesus. It's very opposed to the word of God that we hold in our hands. We, folks, are on enemy ground, but we're just passing through, right? Yes, hallelujah. We're passing through, so don't get your roots too solid in this earth because we're gonna be leaving this place for a time, and then we're gonna come back with the Lord for the millennial reign of Christ, and then after that, a new heavens and a new earth, new Jerusalem. And so we got an exciting and a wonderful future ahead of us. Now this morning we're going to look at verses 12 through the end of the chapter and there's quite a bit to talk about so let's just get right into it. Let's go to verse 12 because notice it says, then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and they bound them. And remember this detachment of troops was around between 200 to 600 men and these were um, men who were subordinate. You know, these were what they call literally. The word "officers" means an under rower or an under um, an under under. Say that fast three times. Under rower <laughs> or a subordinate. That's who they were. And what we're going to see now, from uh, this twelfth verse down through chapter nineteen, verse sixteen, we're going to see Jesus going through three, uh, actually six different trials. Six different trials, and only three of those trials are recorded for us in John. The trial with Annas, which we're going to see in just a few moments, and then two different, two separate trials with Pontius Pilate. And the other Gospels, uh, if you put them together, they also include the other trials as well uh, that Jesus endured. But we're going to look at the fact that Jesus endured six trials, and three of them were religious trials and we're going to see the one before Annas, uh, who was the high priest at that time. We're going to see that first here in John here shortly. And, and these were called religious trials because these were before the Jewish magistrates and before the Sanhedrin. And so Jesus would endure these three trials. And we're going to look at the end uh, of, our, of the message today. We're going to look at how all of this was so false and it was so illegal. Everything that they did in these trials, these six trials of Jesus, was illegal. There was so much illegal activity, it's astounding. It's astounding. And so, and certainly Jesus went before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, and you can see the, in the third bullet there that Jesus' trial before the, the Sanhedrin again. And he also endured civil trials, and we're going to look at only... Um, the one between his first visit with Pontius Pilate, which is number four on your screen there, and number six. But we'll read the the fifth one there where where Jesus went before Herod Antipas. Because remember, as Jesus is going between these, between Pilate and Herod, he was like a hot potato, if you will. And uh, so when Pilate couldn't figure out even what the charges were, why is this guy here? Well, maybe Herod, he's in town, maybe he can help. And so he sends him to Herod, and that, which was illegal to do, but we'll look at that. And then Herod finds nothing wrong with him, sends him back to Pilate again. And so Jesus is like a ping-pong ball being put around to all these different rulers, and there is nothing to accuse him with. So verse 13, back in our text, notice. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now one thing you have to understand is that... Um, Annas was the high priest, but so was Caiaphas. And we'll look at that in just a second. And I love the fact that this name, Annas, his name actually means the grace of Jehovah. But let me ask you, was he really being gracious to Jehovah? <laughs> no, he wasn't. We'll see that as we go along, that his name, uh, grace of Jehovah, was exactly opposite of the character of this, the heart of this man. But Jesus' trial before Annas is not mentioned in any other gospel except John's gospel. And remember, in the Mosaic Law, this idea of a high priest, that office was something that was a lifetime. And those things uh, would last an entire lifetime until the death of the high priest. But one thing that happened uh, during this time is around 15, um, excuse me, Annas was the high priest for a while, and then around 15 AD, a man by the name of Valerius Gratus, who was a Roman prefect who came into power at at, at the year 15, he deposed Annas, took Annas out of his office as high priest, and put his son-in-law in in his place. And his son-in-law was Caiaphas, because Caiaphas had married Annas' daughter. Can you see how this is going to create trouble within the family? Possibly. (laughs) You know, Annas gets deposed, but now the Roman government, Valerius Gratus, he puts Caiaphas in this place as high priest. And the Jews really saw Annas as the high priest, but now they've got two high priests. So as you go throughout the scripture, you're going to see them both referred to as the high priest. But it was because the Roman authorities didn't want any concentration of power in any one man, they would frequently change the high priest out like that. Just to keep people from getting too centered and too focused on one man. And so that's what happened at that time. And so, verse 14 now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 11, just a few chapters prior. And let's take a look at John chapter 11. In verse 45, this is what the high priest said. This is what Caiaphas said. and Very interesting. Because Caiaphas wasn't, a, wasn't friendly to Jesus. He was really an enemy to Christ. But notice what it says in verse 45. It says, Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did... Uh, believed in him, but some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, "Um, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. And if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now, Caiaphas said this inadvertently. He didn't really understand what he was saying, but what he meant was that, so we don't get any trouble with the Romans, we're gonna kill Jesus. But while he said that and the way he said it, God was actually working through this man because in actuality, Jesus would die. For the sin of not only the nation of Israel, but for the sin of the whole world. And so you see how Annas, or excuse me, Caiaphas was thinking one thing and the Holy Spirit was thinking a complete different thing. One was just selfish and local and the other one was far reaching and very broad in scope because, again, they were afraid of, of, of Jesus and they wanted to get rid of him. And so. We're going to look at now Peter denying Jesus, but before we do that, I want to share with you just the difference between betrayal and denial. Certainly, betrayal and denial are both sin issues, but let me suggest to you that one is even more severe than the other, because we know that Judas, he betrayed Jesus. He betrayed Jesus, but Peter denied him. And it says in John 18, verse 2, that Judas betrayed him who also knew the place, and Jesus often went there with his disciples. This word betray, and we looked at this last week, literally means to deliver up or to give into the hands of another with the intent of judging them and condemning them, punishing them, scourging them, and ultimately putting them to death. That is what the word betrayal is. It was a very determined, it was a premeditative act by Judas, wasn't it? It was very premeditated. And so Judas betrayed Jesus, but Peter denied him. And you may wonder well, isn't that just as bad? Well, I suppose, but not as much because when you think about what happened to Peter, he, had a, he was very self-confident in what he was able to do. He thought that he would never desert Jesus. He felt like he, that there's not, everybody else could leave, but Lord, I'm gonna stay with you. And then in a moment, in a moment, and it was spontaneous, it happened just like that as Peter is being questioned by a young girl, two girls actually, he caved they said you know this man your speech betrays you you're one of the Galileans you know Jesus don't you you're not one of them are you and he says nope I'm not can you see how one is premeditated his denial though although it can be forgiven even the betrayal could have been forgiven if Judas really was seeking that but it was a spontaneous thing. And haven't you been in that place before where you've denied Jesus too? Maybe a, a fellow employee or someone at the grocery store approaches you and you feel the Lord nudging you to share with somebody and all of a sudden, you just don't have the courage. And maybe they even ask you, hey, um, what do, what do, you know, where, where do you go to church? And all of a sudden, you just kind of clam up. And, and that way, we deny Jesus every day. We deny him every day. We're no different than Peter. But Judas' betrayal was premeditated. It was satanic, and this denial of Peter was just a lapse in uh, strength at the moment. Lapse in strength. So notice verse 15 in our text says, So Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Underline another disciple. (laughs) Now that disciple, meaning the other disciple, was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Now we know that another disciple, this refers to John. In his gospel, he doesn't refer to himself in the first person. But he refers to himself as a couple of different things. The other disciple. He refers to himself as that disciple or the disciple that Jesus loved. I like that. Are you a disciple that Jesus loved or loves you are. You're a disciple whom Jesus loves. And I love the fact that he wasn't shy about that. He was very upfront about, hey, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. It doesn't mean that he didn't love the others, but he, notice, who was the one resting his head on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper? You know, were all the guys gathering around him, you know, and leaning on him? Lord, is it me? Well, it was only John. Of course, John was positioned positioned right next to him on his right side because Jesus was was here and, and John was here and Judas was the guest of honor on the left side of Jesus. So he could do that. But notice that this, this disciple, John, was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. And so Annas knew, the high priest knew the apostle John and evidently was on terms with him so much that they were able... John was able to get into the courtyard for these proceedings. And isn't it true it's not what you know, but it's who you know? In everything in life. And I used to uh, fight against that, but it's true, isn't it? It's not what you know, it's who you know. John knew the high priest. He was able to get in the door into the courtyard and see what was going on with Jesus. And in life, it's like that, isn't it? It's not what you know. It's who you know. And even spiritually. You know, you can know Muhammad. You can know Buddha. You can know Donald Trump. You can know Elon Musk. You can know a number of people. But none of them are going to get you to heaven. But if you know them on this earth, that may help you. And if they know you, you may have benefits of that because it's who you know. But let me suggest to you that the we know the Son of God. We know Jesus Christ, the creator of all things. And knowing him, we are gonna spend an eternity with him, the one who made everything. I know, I'd rather, I'm glad that I have that relationship with him, aren't you? More, more than anything else, more than any other big wig. I mean, some people say, well, you know, I know this congressman and I have this, you know, kind of in with them and I get, you know, news from them and they send me direct, me, you know, text messages and it's like, okay, that's nice, but I get to sit before the king of kings, the one who created this man. So I think I'm going to go with Jesus. That's it. I'm going to stay with Jesus, right? <laughs> I'm going to stay with him. But we're going to see um, Jesus predicted Peter's denial. And we'll just look at a couple of these. Um, it's labeled the first, the first time and the second time. Twice Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him. The first time we see in Luke chapter 22, it says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, and again, this is in that upper room during that Passover meal. Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Ooh. I would hate to hear that. Not one of the demons, but the big guy himself. (laughs) Satan has desired to sift you But I have prayed for you, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And he says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you have denied me three times that you even knew me. Peter didn't know himself. I don't know myself. Do you know yourself? Maybe you know yourself better than I do. But I'm finding as I get older in the Lord and as I walk with him that I'm, fi- I'm finding that I don't really don't know who I really am. I really don't know who I really am until situations and uh, things happen in my life and then I see how I respond and I find out who I really am. Am I a coward or am I really walking in faith and trusting in Jesus? And the Lord has a way of making that known. And he often does it to me privately and I'm really thankful for that because then I can go back and get my face on the ground and pray for forgiveness and for strength, right? But notice in John 13, again, in that upper room, it says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. And Jesus says, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. And how did Jesus know that Peter would deny him? Because in his deity, Jesus is omniscient. He knows all things. Omni, science, omniscient. It means I know all things. He knows all things. He's also omnipresent. He is all places at once by his spirit. He can be, he's right now, he's in the Ukraine. He's seeing everything that's going on and yet he knows the details and the thoughts of our hearts as we sit here this morning. And he's also omnipotent, which means he's all powerful. There's no power outside of him. And those three attributes he alone has. No other being has them. Satan is not omnipotent. He's certainly not omniscient and he's not omnipresent, but God is. Hallelujah. I'm so glad that Satan is can't be in one place. He can't be in more than one place at once. He can't. And I'm really glad, but your heavenly Father has got you covered. What kind of insurance company is that? He's got you covered. That'd be a good insurance company to have. (laughs) And you do have that. But notice in verse 17, then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Notice how she framed the question in the negative. Isn't it true that we can manipulate people we can we, we can manipulate how people answer by how we phrase the question and i wonder what would happen if the if the young girl says are you do you know him but the way she phrases it and how do, how was it you're not also one of those are you and peter buckles a momentary lapse of courage of strength but this is Peter's first denial, and we're going to see that Peter is going to deny the Lord three times. Certainly, the servant girl that we just looked at, and we're just going to look at a couple of these, and we're going to sum these up—these um, three denials—in two passages: the in the first uh, bullet there, and Mark fourteen, verse sixty-six, and then we'll go down to John eighteen, and and we can see exactly what happened. And, Mark chapter 14, it says this, that as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also are with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out to the porch, and a rooster crowed. And then the servant girl saw him again, and either the same servant girl or another, uh, perhaps, began to say to him uh, who stood by, this is one of them. And so he's first encountered by two young girls, and he caves. And you know, before I would you know, think of myself anything, it's very possible that I would have caved too. I don't know. I wasn't there. I wasn't under the certain circumstances that he was under. But I don't have very much confidence in my flesh anymore. I try not to anyway. Anyway. But in John chapter eighteen, verse twenty six says one of the servants of the high priest, notice a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I didn't I see you in the garden with him? And Peter denied it, and the and the rooster crowed. And think of how difficult this was. Now the servants, verse 18 back in our text, the servants and the officers who made a, a fire of coal stood there for it was cold and they warmed themselves and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. And I think there's a, not, not to make a big deal of this, but I think it's important that we as Christians that we don't find ourselves warming our hands at the fires of the enemies of Christ. Organizations and groups that are opposed to Christ, that are atheistic, that are opposed to Christ. There are many of them today. And yet, some Christians ally themselves with these groups. And why would you do such a thing? Why would you align yourself with a group or an organization, a party of any kind, that has shown itself to be antagonistic to the truth of Jesus Christ? And there's guilty. Everybody's guilty. Everybody is guilty of that. But a true Christian should never be complicit and warm their hands at the fires of the enemy, feeling comfortable with them. Are you on God's side or the world's side? We need to make our calling and our election sure today. Who and why are we supporting what we support? Do we even know what the organization stands for? You know, it'd be like the the, the insanity of a Christian, you know, um, funding Planned Parenthood. Why would you do that? When they're responsible for the killings of millions, the murders of millions of babies in a year. Hundreds of thousands, actually. Pretty sad, isn't it? But notice in verse 19, so now Jesus is going to be questioned by the high priest. And it says, the high priest, and this is Annas, by the way, then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. And Jesus answered them, I spoke openly to the world. And and, and i got to be careful here. So even the tone of which I'm speaking, do you understand? I'm a little bit um, feeling a little bit of intrepidation and how I say Jesus' words. I would love to hear his inflection because that could probably change things, so I gotta be careful here. But notice what Jesus said to him. He says, I spoke openly to the world. And I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. Jesus' doctrine was always something out in the open. It wasn't something hidden. He wasn't trying to gather a movement on the sly. He is and was and is the embodiment of truth and of the truth of God. And so verse 21, he says, why why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I have said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, do you answer the high priest like that? Isn't that amazing? The guy who purports to be the head honcho there in Jerusalem, Annas, he has one of his subordinates slap Jesus, the son of God, the one who formed this man in in the womb. I would say that's a pretty big deal. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I've said to them. Indeed, you know what I've said. And, and so he gets slapped by uh, the high priest or the high priest's servant. And verse 23, Jesus answered, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? And Paul knew this very thing because we know that in Acts chapter 23, we're not going to go there, but he was actually uh, smacked by the high priest's servant as well. And Paul lost his nerve a little bit and he says... God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. <laughs> Notice Jesus didn't lose his cool, but Paul did. But then once he realized that it was the high priest that he was referring to, or that that's who he was standing before, he apologized and, and ate the humble pie at that point. And I love that because that just shows the humanity of the apostle Paul. Jesus, you know, he got smacked. He got crucified. There's never a curse word that came out of his mouth. Nothing to defend his own self. Amazing thing. Amazing thing. He willingly laid down his life for us. Hallelujah. Because he loves us. Love the love of God, don't you? Be raptured by the love of God. Let it just take you. Let yourself be loved by God. Some people don't want to be loved by God. Always oh, too far out there, indifferent and impersonal, and somewhere out there, and someday I, maybe I'll meet him. No, he's with you. He is Emmanuel, God with us. That's what Emmanuel means. He's with you in by in his spirit. And hopefully he's indwelling every one of us. And it's there for the asking for anyone who does want to be indwelt. So verse 24, Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. So now Um, Annas is the high priest, but also Caiaphas the high priest. Right? Caiaphas is really the figurehead, although Annas was really the the old guard, if you will. But now he's been deposed by the Romans and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is now in his role. And he has a little more clout now, more than Annas does. And so notice in verse 25, now Peter stood and warmed himself and therefore they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? You see how they, uh, the, the, the question is in the negative and, and it almost begs a negative response. No, I'm not, I'm not one of his. Are you, are you not one of his disciples? He denied it and he said, I'm not. And verse 26, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative, notice, of those whose ear Peter cut off said, didn't I not see you in the garden? This final denial was probably the worst because Peter is looking at the man who saw him in the garden earlier and this man was a relative of Malchus, a relative of the man that Peter cut the ear off of. And so this relative is looking and going, hey, aren't you the, aren't you the fool that took out the sword and cut my, my relative's ear off? Not me. Not me. I didn't do it. Can you imagine the pressure you would you would feel cuz now he's in he's he's in there right now. They could arrest him now if they so chose to. So Peter then denied again verse 27 and immediately the rooster crowed fulfilling the prophecy of Jesus in John chapter 13:38. Most assuredly before the rooster will crow before the rooster crows you will deny me 3 times. And so now, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early in the morning, but they, they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled that they might not eat the Passover. So they wanted Jesus dead, but they really didn't want to go through the proceedings because it would defile them, and then they couldn't eat the Passover meal. That's horrible. They couldn't eat the meal. The praetorium, or the judgment hall as it's called, was in Herod's palace. And this is where Pilate resided. And again, notice the movement of the trials. We've already looked at the first one, Jesus before Annas. And so he, um, we're not gonna look at the other two trials here, number two and number three. Um, we're gonna get right into the, the civil trials. And we're already in the midst of uh, this one where he's standing before Pilate. And it says in verse 29 here back in our text, so this is the first time that Jesus would stand before Pilate. Pilate then went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Notice they didn't have an accusation. He had already been through this religious trial, three different trials already, and they they happened very quickly. And by the time he gets to Pilate, Pilate's going, why is this man even here? And he couldn't get an answer. Some say one thing, and others say another, and so there's a lot of confusion because there's no real trial. They know in their hearts they've got nothing against him, but yet it didn't keep them from accusing him. Does that sound familiar? So Pilate went out, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Well, that's nice, but what did he do? And then Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to your law. And therefore the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke signifying by what death he would die. And when they said this, we don't have the authority to put this man to death, Pilate's going, then he must have done something worthy of death. If that's what you're saying, then please enlighten me. Please enlighten me. And the Jews at this time were stripped of their authority to implement capital punishment. Their capital punishment was stoning to death, but they, when the Romans took over, they weren't able to implement capital punishment. Only the Romans were able to do that for those who are worthy of it. But Jews, G, Jesus wasn't going to be stoned to death. He knew very well what was going to happen, that he would be crucified. And what's really interesting about this is that it fulfilled a prophecy about a thousand years prior to this in Psalm 22. David wrote it and he says, for dogs have surrounded me. And, and David is actually prophesying of what would happen to Jesus a thousand years in the future when he wrote it. And he's He's describing something that would happen that hadn't even been invented yet because crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet. The Romans didn't invent crucifixion. It was the Persians. But notice, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and they stare at me and they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots that is exactly what happened. But they pierced his hands and his feet? Yes. It's called crucifixion. It hadn't even been invented yet. And yet, David, through the Spirit, is prophesying what hap- would happen to Jesus. So verse 33, So Pilate entered the praetorium again, and he called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, Are you speaking this for yourself? Or did others tell you this concerning me? And Pilate said, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would certainly fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Jesus says, you rightly say that I am. And then Pilate says, what is truth? What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no fault in this man at all. And this is the question that colleges and universities are still searching for. What is truth? This question is what the postmodern generation continually asks. What is truth? And yet, the embodiment of truth has already been here. And the truth is in our hands this morning in the word of God. That is the truth. And we know We know the truth, right? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. And he also said, Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus and his word. He is the word of God, and this is also the word of God. And they are the truth to us. The search is over. You don't need to go looking for some truth in the, in, in, in the far east under some you know, lotus tree you know, in, the, in the lotus position with your knees and your legs crossed and you know, fixating on a vowel or something. You don't have to do any of that. The truth is Jesus and his word. Do you know the truth? Between verse 38 and 39, chronologically, you might want to write in. Right between verse 38 and 39, write this reference. It's Luke chapter 23. Verses 6 through 12. And this is where he went to Herod Antipas. In, in fact, so this um, Jesus before Herod. So now that Pilate can't figure out, he's kind of befuddled on what to do with Jesus. He heard that Herod was in town. So he sends Jesus to Herod. And it tells us in Luke 23, let me read it to you. It says, when Pilate heard of Galilee, that Jesus was of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. In other words, he wanted to be entertained. Hey, Jesus, could you take this this bird that's in my hand and turn it into a gold statue? Can you take this... This bowl and turn it into a bowl of jello? And of course, Jesus could have turned it into a filet mignon if he wanted to, still steaming with mashed potatoes. But he didn't, because that's not what he was about. And so, beginning now in verse 39, this is really the second time that Jesus appeared before Pilate, the second time, or um, line item six here on the screen. This was the second time, and this is going to take us all the way into chapter 19 to verse 16, this final episode of Jesus' trial. Certainly he's been like a hot potato all all around, and now he's before Pilate the very last time. And it says in verse 39, but you have a custom, Pilate says, that I should release someone to you at the Passover Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And when they all cried, then they all cried again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Now Barabbas was a true criminal, but Jesus was not a criminal. In fact, he was the only one in the entire world who had not sinned. He was the only one perfect on the earth. And you would think that there'd be something about him. You know, Have you thought about that? As perfect and wonderful as Jesus is, yet his glory was veiled while he was in his physical structure on the earth. Can you imagine? He he looked very plain. Isaiah tells us there's no form, there's no comeliness that we should desire him. He was so plain looking that he had to be pointed out by Judas. He was so plain and ordinary. That was, you know, he didn't have flowing blonde hair and look like, you know, somebody. Barry Gibb. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Staying alive. But you know what a what a sad predicament. The the perfection of Christ was right before him and they shunned it and they rather chose a base substitute, a very base substitute. And this is just the the unfortunate thing of man. And so let me ask you the question, was Jesus' trial, as we have looked at this, was Jesus' trial was it legal? You know that I'm going to say it wasn't because that's true. It was not legal on many levels, and, and, and I'm only going to share a few of these things with you today. But I'm going to read to you a couple of things. There was one quote by this gentleman. He was his name is Earl Wingo. He was a past president of the Mississippi Bar, Mississippi State Bar Association. So a lawyer, and he looked into the the, the Mishnah and a lot of these different writings about uh, Hebrew law. And as he began to look at these things, he began to see so many discrepancies on many levels. And he says a careful analysis of all the Jewish laws in existence when Jesus was tried brings one to the conclusion that the entire proceedings were a mockery. Every protective law was ignored when dealing with Jesus. And there was this book that I found that I thought was really a a good one. Uh, It's called The Illegal Trials of Jesus by this um, Mississippi um, State Bar Association lawyer that put this all together. And the things I'm sharing with you are certainly within uh, the contents of this book. But basically, he just outlines the illegalities of Jesus' arrest and sentencing. And I think this is important for us to look at because it's something you don't hear a whole lot of. And so let's look at the very first one. It says... Uh, The thing that was wrong with this whole thing is the arrest was without authority of law and therefore illegal. And the arrest was, uh, was done by a mob of soldiers and nothing was given to Jesus or said to him concerning why he was being arrested. There was no warrant for his arrest. They certainly didn't read the Miranda warning to him before they handcuffed him and said, You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be held against you in the court of law. If you do not have an attorney, one will be appointed for you. Do you understand these rights? That's basically what they didn't do. There was no warrant. He had no idea why he was being arrested. He knew, actually, but they didn't present that. Why? Because they didn't even know. They just hated him. He was bad for business. He was bringing people to himself and it was cutting off this, this following from the religious leaders and he was getting, they were getting really upset with him because he had real power and they had totally forsaken Christ. They'd forsaken God by their rules and regulations and they had missed what God had called them to do. And so there was nothing here. The arrest was without authority and therefore illegal. And Annas, before whom Jesus was first taken uh, for examination, was a mere politician without jurisdiction. He had no judicial authority over Jesus. And this is what the Hebrew law states. There was no authority because there was no uh, warrant. There was nothing. There was, and the law prohibited the taking of any prisoner before any individual for a private examination. And that's exactly what happened with Annas. He was taken privately. And the Hebrew law stated that nor under any circumstances was a man known to be at enmity, excuse me, rephrase that again, nor under any circumstances was a man known to be at enmity with the accused person permitted to occupy a position among the judges. And Annas and Caiaphas and all of them were, um, they hated Jesus they weren't even supposed to be a part of the proceedings of the, be, to be among the judges and annas hated jesus because of the doctrinal differences and therefore he was not supposed to be there and so the third thing is the sanhedrin were was unlawfully assembled the laws prohibited the sanhedrin from meeting on the day before a sabbath and this was a high sabbath and it was also the passover they weren't they were prohibited from um the Sanhedrin for meeting on the day before a Sabbath, at night, remember that, at night, or during the celebration of the feast of Passover, and it was between 2 and 3.30 in the morning when all of these proceedings happened, under the cover of darkness, illegal in every way, And four, the charges against Jesus began to change as the trial went forward. No accusations were were given to him or anyone at the very beginning. And as the trial was going on, Annas charged Jesus with blasphemy when nothing was working out. He basically charged him with blasphemy. But not at the beginning. As the trial was going onward, he was tried, or, you know, the charges of blasphemy were brought up, and when Jesus was before Pilate, the charge was then changed to sedition. You don't try for somebody, and then as you go along in the trial, you don't just start bringing up charges. "Oh, that didn't work. So let me pull out another one. Let me hang on a minute. I've got to pull out another charge out of my pocket. Oh, here's another one. Oh, that didn't work. Oh, I got another one. Hang on." And then they pull out another one. Does that sound familiar? They were fishing for something, anything that would stick. They couldn't find anything. And when the accusation didn't add up, they tried another one. And they tried four different charges. They said that he perverted the nation, that he forbid to pay taxes. He said that he was a king, which was an affront against Caesar. They said that he was stirring up the people of the nation and thus seditious. None of these things were true. And then the fifth thing, Jesus was denied an opportunity to obtain witnesses for himself. They didn't let him. And at least two witnesses were required to testify in support of a a charge against the accused and their testimony had to agree as to all the material facts involved. The burden of proof was upon them to charge him. But what does it tell us in Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 55, it says this. Now the chief priests and all the council sought counsel Testimony, excuse me, against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Right there, the whole thing is a mistrial, or you know, he, he should be acquitted. And then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And yet, even in Deuteronomy, the law states that, in Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, that whoever is deserving of death shall not be put to death on the testimony of, of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. It has to be two or more. They have to agree on the material evidence. And none of this was happening. None of it was working. Everything was false. Everything was not mashing out. They didn't have one credible witness And Caiaphas even broke the ninth commandment when he bore false witness against Jesus. He accused him of blasphemy, and there was no way of of, of, of proving that or disproving it. And number seven, it was not lawful to conclude the trial in a single day. Jewish law says a criminal case where a death sentence is to be pronounced cannot be concluded before the following day. The trial of Jesus was concluded in a few hours, although under the law it was required to be carried out forward into the second day. And they did it at night, which was also illegal. And they didn't have everybody present either. There were supposed to be 73 members. I think only 23 were present you see a lot of problems with this? Kind of sounds like our judicial system at times. And then finally, 8. Or not finally, but next is 8. The Jews had no authority to exact capital punishment. The Romans, as I said earlier, had taken that from them. So as they're bringing Jesus before them saying, we want this man, he's worthy of death, they didn't have the authority. It was illegal for them to even go that direction. But it didn't stop them. They did it anyway. Why? Because the devil in them, encouraging them, wanted to put the Son of God to death, to snuff out His life. And Jesus, of course, didn't resist it because it was for this purpose that He came. Do you see how God's uh, ultimate, um, God's purposes are not going to be thwarted, even though man in his illegality and his sin, you see how these they can they can happen simultaneously. Jesus came for this purpose to die. He wasn't a martyr. He willingly laid down his life. But God holds those men, all of them, responsible for all the illegality, all the wickedness that they did. God just has the unfair advantage of being outside of time and being able to see the end from the beginning. That's, he's the only one who can. And so he can tell things as if it's fact, but he didn't make those men do it. They operated on their own evil hearts. And they had opportunity, didn't they? And a unanimous verdict of guilty, and this is one I don't quite understand, to be honest with you, but I think it's just a protection in the Jewish law. A unanimous verdict of guilty rendered on the same day, a verdict of guilty, a unanimous guilty verdict on on the same day was basically, a, uh, a would result in an acquittal. And probably because they probably think that there's something awry. Why is it that everybody's against him and you did this all in one day? There's gotta be something, something doesn't sound right. And so that would uh, allow for an acquittal. And yet that didn't stop them. And number 10, it was not lawful to condemn Jesus solely upon his own confession. Jesus did say, I am the son of God. But a voluntary confession on his part is not admitted in evidence and therefore not competent to convict unless a legal number of witnesses minutely corroborate his self-accusation. And because no one came forward to deny the claims of Christ of being the Son of God, they could, they would have had to acquit him because there was not at least two witnesses against him. And Jesus wasn't even given the opportunity to defend himself Recently, we saw a trial where a young man who had uh, shot some people in self-defense, when he realized his lawyers, for whatever reason, they decided to put him on the stand, and it actually worked out pretty well because he was telling the truth. He was able to defend himself, but Jesus was not even able to defend himself. Illegal. Illegal. And Jesus, taken from Pilate to Herod, was against the law, since there was no charge and thus nothing to decide. And as such, Herod had no jurisdiction over Jesus. It was wrong for Pilate to send him to Herod. There were no charges. There was no jurisdiction. Illegal. And it was illegal for Pilate to pronounce Jesus not guilty, but then hand him over to be crucified. Why would you crucify an innocent man? But you remember what he said to them. You remember what he said? He says, he, took, he had a bowl of water and he goes, I wash my hands of this whole thing. You see to it. Oh, huh. well, it doesn't work that way, Mr. Pilate. You are complicit in this because you basically said, you said four different times I find no fault in this man and yet... It's illegal for you to deliver this man to be crucified when he is not guilty. He wasn't charged. He had no charges against him. All the charges that people brought up were by false witnesses. None of them matched up. There were so many things. This thing was riffed with illegality and deception. And yet, the Bible said hundreds and even thousands of years prior through the prophets that this would happen. That Jesus would go to the cross and pay the price. And I love that about Jesus. All throughout those proceedings, he could have said, Can you imagine that? (laughs) Forgive me. Um, You know, as Jesus is, is, is going through these six different trials, as they're talking, he could have said, Nope, that's not true. Nope, that's illegal. Illegal against your own law. Nope, that's not true. False, false news, fake news. That's not true. That's not true. That's not true. Boy, you guys are batting for a thousand. That's not true. And as he he would go from, you know, Annas to Caiaphas and Caiaphas to Pilate and Pilate to Herod and then Herod back to Pilate, he could have just said, Nope, that's not true. And you don't have any authority over me. I'm the one who has authority. Who was in control throughout this whole thing? Was man in control? Man thought he was in control. Judas thought he was in control. He had no authority. He was acting on his own evil heart. But God just happened to know what was gonna happen. Isn't it sad? But yet we have a Savior who, knowing all of this, knowing the complete corruption, you know, Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. And as I look today, in our culture, in our judicial system. My mother was a bailiff in the Lee County Sheriff's Department for many years. My whole family's in law enforcement and I've heard stories. Man's government is messed up. It's not always accurate, it's not always true. But as I look around and I see the things that are going on and that have gone on and will continue to go on, it's not gonna be fair, it's not going to be just. It's not going to be right, but know this, that God knows, and you know him, and he knows you, and he's going to take care of you in spite of these things that rattle us. If you're like me, I have a sense of justice in my heart, don't you? Because we read the word of God, we know what God expects of man. And man has fallen, including myself, have fallen way short. And I get angry about that. And I have to learn to, you know, to, to trust him in the midst of this battle that we're in. And it's being played out before us all on the news. And everything that's going on, there's just so much corruption. You think what's going on in, in the Ukraine and Russia, do you think that's all, all fine and good? No, there's so much corruption on so many different levels. We don't even know it and the press is feeding us lies, and I'll stop there before I really get going. But Jesus, knowing all of this, says, I willingly lay down my life for my sheep. And you're one of his sheep. And I'm one of his sheep. And sometimes I need to get shorn, you know, because I start to grow a little too much. But you know what? We're one of his be encouraged. You know, even as we see the, the, the horrible things that happened to, to Christ. And Jesus said, if these things are going to happen to me, they're going to happen to you. We're not exempt from difficulty. We're not exip, exempt from difficult times. And I think, folks, I would encourage you to get your heart fixated on Jesus Christ. Get your heart fixated on his word and get your eyes off of all the other stuff because he's coming soon. He's coming soon. Why don't we stand and let's pray. <sighs> Heavenly Father, we, just, uh, we thank you uh, today. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you've revealed these things to us. And Lord, thank you for going to the cross for us when we know that we deserved, we deserved the punishment. Lord, you were the only perfect one and yet you came willingly and you, the greatest act of worship occurred on Mount Moriah that day, nearly 2,000 years ago, as another father would put to death his son. God the Father, you put your son, you allowed your son, Jesus, to be put to death on our behalf that we might have the righteousness of Christ. And Lord, how we thank you for that. Lord, encourage us, Lord, in the world that we live in. Lord, there's so many things that are going wrong, so many things that we see that are just not right. God, help us to not lose heart. Help us not to be discouraged. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your spirit, Jesus. Father, fill us with your spirit and help us to be about your business. Lord, there's a whole plethora of people that are scared and have no idea of what we know in this room. And they need to know God. Help us to be about that business. Not about the other business, but about that business. And Lord, help us in the midst of all this to trust you and especially the things that we don't have a clue about, Lord, we have no idea what is happening in the world right now. You've given us the bigger picture, and we thank you for that, but how this is all gonna, where this is gonna be, we have no idea right now. But Lord, we trust you. And Lord, we trust you. And so please fill our hearts with your peace and help us to love one another as you loved us. And help us go out from these walls, and share the truth of the love of God with so many people. Lord, help us not to turn inward and focused on just the church and ourselves. Lord, help us. We ask that you'd fill us, Lord, and would you do these things in all of us? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.